Friends, the Lord be with you. And also with you. This morning for our call to worship, we're going to be using the words of Psalm 104 and Psalm 23 as a call and response between the two sides of the sanctuary. Um, if you're in the sanctuary, the south side will follow Kate, and you'll go first, and the north side will follow me. If you're joining us online this morning, or if you're in another space, you can choose which side um, you, get, you follow. South side, we're going to have to get really loud. I know. If you'll little, notice the number differentiation here, so, <laughs> I mean, no pressure, but don't leave me hanging either, please. So, friends, let's join the words of the psalmist. Um, Let's try that again. And now, let's join the psalmist with these words of worship. Praise the Lord, my soul. Lord, my God, you are very great. You are clothed with splendor and majesty. The Lord is my shepherd. I lack nothing. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He refreshes my soul. He makes springs pour out water into the ravines. It flows between the mountains. They give water to all the beasts of the field. The wild donkeys quench their thirst. He guides me along the right paths for his name's sake, even though I walk through the darkest valley. He made the moon to mark the seasons, and the sun knows when to go down. I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. He makes grass grow for the cattle and plants for people to cultivate, bringing forth food from the earth. You anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. Wine that gladdens human hearts, oil to make their faces shine, and bread that sustains their hearts. Surely your goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. May the glory of the Lord endure forever. May the Lord rejoice in his works. I will sing to the Lord all my life. I will sing praise to God as long as I live. Sisters and brothers, stand as we sing that glory to God together in voice. Of living water flow, my 
Good morning, Fellowship Church. I'm joining you via the screen this morning as I wrap up my quarantine. I long for the day when we can all be gathered together. For those of us who are sick or worshiping on remotely, for the homebound and the outsider to be gathered in one place. How I long for that inclusive party like the one that Jesus hosted at the wedding in Cana. Mindful of the hurt of separation and the brokenness in our very own lives. Let's pray. Lord, we long for a miraculous sign today. Like the changing of water into wine, we long for a change in our society and in our hearts. When we feel discouraged, discouraged by the polarities in this world, discouraged that we have no control over what is happening, discouraged by the ways in which we treat those we love, give us your hope in the power to change, to make things new again. Lord, we long for a miraculous sign today, like your presence at a wedding party with guests. We long for joy and goodness in our society and in our very hearts. When we are bitter, bitter at the disruption caused by a pandemic and yet another wave, bitter at the neighbor who thinks differently than us, bitter with our inescapable selfish thoughts, give us your warmth and welcome to receive to receive those around us. Lord, we long for a miraculous sign today, like your openness to making wine out of water. We long for your radical acceptance and mercy. When we are prude, prude about our way being the best way, prude in using those ways to judge others, prude in our holding ourselves to a higher standard than is humanly possible. We ask that you would give us your grace and acceptance of others and ourselves. Lord, we long for a miraculous sign today, a sign of your grace in our lives and for the sake of this world. Like you did at Cana, restore to us the joy of your presence and life-changing work in our hearts and in this world. In the name of Christ we pray. Amen. As we trust in God's forgiveness and faithfulness, let's continue to sing together. I search the Lord. Nothing 
morning. I want to welcome everyone who's in person this morning and also everyone who's joining us online. I know at least in the first service, we had over 107 uh, different households represented online. So I'm thankful for the technology that allows us to be connected during times like this. And I'm thankful for Holy Spirit that also connects us even when distance is between us. So thank you all for being here. Uh, at Fellowship, where our mission is to love God and others as an accepting community centered on Christ, focused on developing faithful followers of Jesus. And if it's that mission that gets you excited to be a part of this church, uh, we have an opportunity for all uh, people who are not members to become new members. Whether you just started to visit us or you've been attending for a while and haven't made that step, I want to invite you all to our Discover Fellowship Cafe that begins February 2, and that goes February 2, 9 and 16, what those are is it's a chance to learn more about our church, what we do here, and at the end of that, you have the opportunity to become members of this church. So I want to invite you into that. Uh, we're looking forward in the youth ministry to summer. Uh, we're looking at a couple of summer trips. We're hoping to hit the road again and do some service this summer. For the high school, I just want to announce we have extended our signups for our West Virginia trip. That trip is June 18 to 25, stick to my notes here so I don't get it wrong, June 18 to 25, and there are still spots available. If you are in high school and interested in joining us on that trip, contact me or touch base with me after this service. And also middle schoolers will be heading out to Pennsylvania to a missions conference at the end of July. There's an informational meeting on that next week that'll be between services. So if you normally come to this service, come a little bit early next, next week, that'll be at 10:10. So 
That'll be in the youth center, and Hannah will tell you all about that. We're pretty light on the announcements this morning. So with that, if you are a kid or in middle school, you are dismissed to your spaces around the church. You can head out and meet Betsy now. And we're about to hear the good word preached from Ross. I'm going to invite Ross up. And I don't know if you guys know what a method actor is, but a method actor is someone who takes the craft really seriously, goes into character, and stays in it. And Ross takes things very seriously. I view him as a method preacher. You know, he gets these sermons that he just jumps in. So I've been curious all week, as you are about to preach on Jesus turning water into wine, how much wine does a pastor have to drink leading up to a sermon like this so that you feel fully, you know, that you can fully embody what you're about to preach yeah, for yeah, our good. Yeah. Is, is this a trap for a price? Yeah, Are you trying no, to get no. me in trouble? No. I did. Not last night, but this week I decided I was going to have a glass of wine, but it was boxed wine. It was cheap, crappy wine so that I would long for the good stuff of Jesus. And I did that for this particular text. Thank you, friends. How good. Well, good morning, Fellowship Church. The Lord be with you. Good to be together again, and as you know, we are continuing forward in our sermon series that we've recently started since Christmas time, where we're following the Gospel of John, and we're repeatedly asking this question of Jesus, who is this man? And especially as he's revealed in these various stories in the Gospel. You may remember, if you were with us for Christmas, in the prologue, Jesus is first introduced to us as the Word made flesh and he is twice described as one who is full of grace and truth. Later in the first chapter of John, and we looked into this last week, uh, John the Baptist encounters Jesus walking by, and he points him out and says, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And then even further, later in that same chapter, disciples are invited to follow Jesus with his wonderful invitation to come and see. Come and see what it's like to live life with him and in his way in the world. Today we turn to John chapter 2. We're just still getting started. And in this particular chapter, we encounter Jesus at a wedding party. And in this particular scene, he becomes the life of the party in a really wonderful way. If you are uh, joining with us in the deeper journey, uh, uh, in the bulletin, there's a little track where you can uh, go a little further. Uh, and if you're going to study John chapter 2 this coming week, you'll notice there's actually two stories of Jesus in John chapter 2, and they are wonderful stories where he embodies the very titles that were named of him in the first chapter. So, at the wedding party, Jesus acts as one who is full of grace. It's a great story. And then, a little bit later, he's in the temples, and he's flipping tables, and now he is full of truth. And so John chapter 2 gives us this balance of this person who is both full of grace and full of truth. All four gospel writers talk about Jesus flipping over the tables. And so I want to lean into this morning the other story that only John tells us, this wedding at Cana. So to get started, I want to invite you to call forth into your mind some of your favorite memories of a wedding. Could have been yours or maybe someone else's invite you to think a bit about the beauty of the decorations or maybe a wedding dress. Maybe you'll think about the fun dance party that followed at the reception. Maybe you'll think about some meaningful words that were said either in the ceremony or at one of the toasts at the reception. 
for that particular wedding. One of the ones that are really memorable for me, and I'm looking over here because Zach and Shauna Speet usually sit over there. It was at their wedding. Maybe they're online today, but where one of the most memorable toasts was given by the father of the bride, Mr. Buell. He was speaking to the young couple on their wedding day and saying to them not to take life too seriously, and his specific bit of advice was that if you're going to laugh about it later, you might as well laugh about it now. I love that bit of advice. It's very fellowshipy. It was really, really good. If I think back to the wedding that Rachel and I shared together, there's one moment that sticks out for me, and it was where we dropped balloons at the end of the ceremony. We were in a sanctuary about two or three times taller than this one, and there's a catwalk way up there. Some high school students were hiding up there with about 100 balloons. And at the end of the ceremony, when we were declared as a newly married couple, the balloons dropped down, and it was a great celebratory music uh, where we walked on out. Funny thing was that it was a wedding in August, and so these boys were up in that uh, catwalk the entire time, and it was hot. By the time they came down, they were soaked like they took a shower, but it was sweat, so too bad for them. Another one of my favorite memories uh, was this one at a different wedding party where this guy was dancing so hard that he blew his pants out in the back. And you can see the girls laughing so hard at him, she's crying in the background. It was a hoot uh, of a gathering. And then one more image that happened at this very stage right here just this past summer. Danny and Petra there, and uh, the great moment where Mother of the Bride, Lisa Baranius, had the opportunity to come forward and help them share their vows and declare them as a newly married couple. How cool. Uh, In each of these cases, I'm hoping you're getting the idea that these weddings celebrations that we have, they are supposed to be both really, really good and really, really fun. That's what we look for when we go to these wedding gatherings, and the hope is that when you're going home from that particular wedding celebration is that the guests and everyone who was there would say that was indeed a great night. It's a night of joy. What I hope you notice is that the weddings of old, the weddings of Jewish cultures, the wedding at Cana, is actually not radically different than the wedding celebrations that we have today. They too would make preparations for it. They would get dressed up. There would be a certain ceremony that they would gather. Friends and family would come together and eat good food and drink good drink, and there would be dancing and all of these kinds of things. The one big difference, however, is that nowadays we do it all in one grand day, typically. Back then, it would have been an entire week-long celebration. Now, what I want you to, to invite you to think about right now this morning is, again, we're asking of Jesus this question, who is this man? And notice today that he was invited to the wedding party. He and his disciples were invited, and he went, which is a counterbalance to the idea that some have today is that Jesus was some kind of prude or some kind of recluse person, someone who was socially awkward. He was certainly not. He was not like Winnie the Pooh's Eeyore, if you will, who walks around with a thundercloud around and is just moody all the time. There's way too much art out there, if I can voice my frustration, of Jesus that makes him look either aloof or just sad. And that is not the Jesus of this particular story And I don't think the Jesus that we know, the one who gathered crowds and forever influenced the world for good, 
would have been that kind of a moody, mopey one. He's actually the opposite of John the Baptist, who is set side by side with him. John the Baptist was a bit of an ascetic. John the Baptist withdrew from society. John the Baptist abstained from wine. He some fasted from food. Jesus, however, is the opposite. He actually gets in trouble later in the Gospels for having too much fun. He gets accused of these types of things. So, I invite you then, with that introduction, to hear the story of the day, which is John chapter 2, starting at verse 1. It says this, On the third day, which, by the way, your ears should be ringing, this gospel was written some 40 to 60 years after Jesus' life and death, and so the, the, the community of Jesus at that time would know when we say third day, we're talking about resurrection. This is a hint of what's going to happen in this particular story, too. On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples also had been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, They have no more wine. And Jesus replied, Woman, why do you involve me? My hour has not yet come. His mother then said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Nearby stood six stone water jars, six being a symbol of incompleteness, by the way. In John's gospel, the number seven represents wholeness. There's seven signs. Jesus has seven I am statements. Here we have six stone jars, a hint that something is not yet complete. So nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so, and the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, everyone brings out the choice wine first, and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you have saved the best till now. What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he would reveal his glory. And his disciples put their faith in him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. What a cool story, right? A fascinating story to picture Jesus in that place. And I want to start, before we get into it for real, name a few places where we might have adventures in missing the point. It has been said that we humans often, and sometimes even when we read the Bible, often we see what we know rather than actually knowing what we see. It takes real discipline, curiosity, openness to the Word of God, not to see what we expect to see in the, in the particular story of the day, not to find any given story as yet another proof text for or against our favorite issues. So today, I want to adventure, uh, uh, mention a few adventures in missing the point. One of them would be to make this story up to be about alcohol, as if it is good or bad or if this story is to be about drunkenness or abstinence. It's not about that. 
My family had the chance this past summer to go on a trip to Chicago, and we did one of those tours of the architecture tours. Maybe you've done these before. They're really kind of cool. Sounds boring. But one of the things that we noticed there was there was a building that was pointed out that was built during the Prohibition era, and it was built to look just like a champagne bottle. It was their way of putting architecture as a way of protesting prohibition. It was the way that people at that time viewed almost everything, and they certainly would have read this story that way, is either a stance for or against alcohol. It's kind of funny to realize that that's happened even with a building in Chicago. But I want to say pretty clearly that this story of Jesus turning water into wine is not an endorsement of the college kegger nor is it, at the same time, needing some kind of tricky interpretation that makes it sound like Jesus somehow still served water, but it tasted like wine, teetotalering kind of, kind of style. It's just not that. In the Bible, wine is a fermented beverage, and people would drink it at moments of celebration. It was usually watered down even, two, three parts water, two parts wine, and if there was a stronger beverage in mind, something with higher alcohol content, there's a different word for that. It's called strong drink. And usually the word wine and strong drink are in the same sentence because they're different things. What matters, however, in this story is that wine in the Bible is a sign of God's blessing. And even as we said at the call to worship today, wine is recognized as something that gladdens the heart. And abundant wine in the Bible would be a sign of God's abundant blessings. There's scripture texts that support that all over the place. But again, this story is not about alcohol, so I'm going to move on a little bit more. It's also not about gender, about Jesus respecting or disrespecting his mom in this particular story. Some want to look at this story and paint up Mary as if she's this great one who does something in the story, who gets Jesus to do something that he didn't want to do. It's not about that. Others notice that Jesus calls her woman, which isn't very friendly or endearing, and make it up to be something other than it is. It's, the term is actually a bit like a New York taxi driver saying, hey, lady, hey, lady, get in the car. Hey, lady, hurry up. It jars you a little bit. But again, the exchange with Mother Mary is important. We'll get to that in a minute, but it's not about gender. One more adventure in missing the point for this text would be that some people read into it that we are supposed to have some kind of heroic discipleship, our heroic obedience. And you'll notice in the story, if you're looking for it, you'll see that Jesus actually offers three commands. He says first, fill, as in fill the jars. Then he says draw, as in draw out the water slash wine. And then finally, he says take. Take it to the master of the banquet or take it yourself. But all of these are very simple instructions and very rudimentary obedience. The hero of this story is not the person that obeys, but the master who does the miracle. In fact, one commentator said it so well, I want to share with you what they said. They said, sometimes Christians turn gracious stories about Jesus into burdensome requirements for heroic believers, thereby making the wrong person the story's hero. And in doing this, we take the gospel out of the gospel. We must not overcharge the story with our part in it, and the story 
honors a divine miracle, not a human achievement. So I've shared with you kind of clearly that this story is not about the alcohol, it's not about gender, it's not about our heroic obedience. What then is it about? I hope you're curious. What is this story about? Well, John actually tells us, and it's in a bit of a hidden place. It's way back at the end of his gospel in chapter 20, and I have it here on the screen for you. John says, this is titled in your Bibles, if you look it up, it's titled The Purpose of the Book. This is what it says. It says, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these, the signs that are recorded in this book, these ones are written so that you may believe. That's the first reason that these signs are, are told, so that we might believe in Jesus, that he is the Messiah, the Son of God. And the second reason is that by believing, you may have life, abundant life in his name. That's why the story is told. And so with that in mind, I invite you to look again at the story as we have it. And I want to pull forth a few images from the crowdfunded uh, show, The Chosen, which give at least an interpretation of what it might have looked like back then. You can imagine that, like any other wedding, there was a moment where there were preparations to be made. Some place needed to be set up for this great event, and so it would have happened for this particular wedding at Cana, too. There would have been a moment in which Jesus was reunited with his mother because the two had been apart a little bit already. Jesus was out and about bringing in disciples, and then they would have finally come together again. Then, of course, there would have been a wedding ceremony, and... Afterwards, some food and drink and dancing and even some toasting, like some of these images would suggest as well. But eventually, as this great wedding party is unfolding, something goes wrong, as often does at wedding celebrations. And in this particular case, it is that they run out of wine. So there stands Jesus, and he's amidst the rest of the people there. And up to him comes Mother Mary, a.k.a. Mom, and she comes to her son and names the problem to his face. She says, they have no more wine. There's a few more freeze frames that we have here, and we don't really know what the look on her face would have been in that particular moment. But she starts off seeming to have a bit of confidence that Jesus has the ability or the ingenuity or something to address this particular problem. But Jesus comes back rather sharply. Lady, why do you involve me? Seems to be a bit of a not-my-problem kind of response that he puts forth. And this is where you wish that in the scriptures we had some kind of markings that give us intonation. What did they look like, and how did they say these particular things? When Jesus was responding to his mother in that particular moment, was there a pause? Was there a smirk? Was there a wink of some sort? I mean, remember, this is an interaction between a mother and a son. They've spent 30 years of life together already. Was Jesus' response to his mom that day serious, or was it sarcastic? Did mom hear him say what he said, and then did she roll, his, roll her eyes, <laughs> as moms might sometimes do? Jesus does offer a rationale in that particular moment. He gives us one more, one more reason that he will, his first answer is no. He says, my, my time has not yet come. 
And in John's gospel, my hour, my time, is code word for something significant. Whenever he says that it's not that time yet, that time, his hour, is the hour of the great weekend, the weekend of his humiliation and his exaltation, Good Friday, Holy Saturday, and Easter Sunday. And Jesus is saying in this particular moment, it's not that time yet. I'm not going public, public just yet. And in fact, what he will do even at this wedding will stay mostly secret. Only his disciples and a few others actually know what happens here. He doesn't go public just yet. But Jesus is distancing himself a little bit and becoming a person who does his own thing rather than doing specifically what his mom tells him to do. However this exchange really unfolds and whatever expressions were on their face in that particular moment, the transition is abrupt. Mother Mary hears Jesus and either accepts what he says or ignores it or something, and then she immediately turns off to the side to the waiters right there, and she offers, I think, some of the world's best wedding advice, maybe the world's best advice altogether. She says, do whatever he tells you. Do whatever he tells you. Do whatever he tells you. It is great advice for all of life, and Mother Mary offers it right there in the midst of this party. It, It represents for her a transition from being a mom who instructs her son what to do to being one who, like all the rest of us, looks to Jesus and lets him be his own one who does what he does. She embodies what the text says the sign is about, looking to Jesus and trusting him, believing him, trusting our whole lives to him in each and every situation. And so she says to Jesus, or to the uh, waiters then, and to each of us now, in all of life, look to Jesus and do whatever he tells you. That's the first meaning of this sign. That's the intent that we're supposed to see from it, to look to Jesus and to believe, to put our trust in him. But of course, the sign hasn't even happened yet. The exciting part is yet to come, and John tells us also at the end of the Gospels that his goal is not only that we would believe in Jesus, but also that by believing in him, we would have life in his name. That's the other thing that these signs symbolize for us. And so these signs are not only historical events of things that happened once upon a time. They are also signifiers of deeper and more timeless truths. And in this case, it is a symbol of what it's like for Jesus to show up on the scene anywhere. There's a few things that I want you to notice that happen. The first, notice the abundance the abundance. There's six stone jars that are mentioned there, each of them holding 20 to 30 gallons of water. All of it is turned to wine. Do a little math and you'll find that that is approximately 120 to 180 gallons of water turned into wine. That would be two full shipping pallets worth of wine. 900 bottles for a small little party up in Cana of Galilee. It is abundant, and the message is clear. This is a Psalm 23, my cup runneth over kind of moment. There is more than enough. It will not run out. It is a new kind of exuberance 
a quantity that is shockingly impressive. But that's not all. There's even still more. Notice, second, the goodness of this particular wine that Jesus provides. All who saw this miracle, and especially those who tasted it, are clearly impressed. Their response almost immediately is, wow, this is good. So here's an image of, my, of the wine cellar in my basement. Uh, just kidding. <laughs> but that's kind of the mood that you get here, is that this is the really good stuff, the kind that a waiter would bring out and hold on a towel as if it's like a baby, right? It is the really premier stuff We don't get the details of what Jesus did, what exactly made this wine so good, in the same way that we don't get any details of exactly how it happened. There's no moment of prayer or abracadabra or anything like that. It's just that Jesus was there, and this water became wine, and it was the best, saved for last. It is unmatched in quality. So we have this story, a sign where there is abundant quantity and unmatched quality, and both of them are signifying for us what it's like for Jesus to show up on the scene. And I want to remind you for a minute that this will not be the last time that Jesus speaks of wine. There will come another time in the near future where Jesus will grab just one cup, not 900 bottles, but just one cup, and he will infuse that cup with the promise of his forgiveness of sins, naming it as his blood. This cup will be like that wine at Cana, unending in quantity and unmatched in quality. You cannot tap out the wine of his forgiveness. God, the Father, in Jesus Christ is more ready, willing, and able to forgive then we are able to sin. The wine will not run out. And there's another story in the Bible that will mention yet again a wedding banquet, but this time it won't be a cute couple up in the hills of Cana in Galilee. It will instead be the great kingdom banquet in the party of the ages where the Lamb of God is finally and fully united with his bride, the church, And the quality, the unmatched quality of that great celebration will be like the wine of Cana. It is the best saved for last. And that's what Jesus is introducing with this, just the first of his many signs. It leaves us wondering, who is this man? Who is this man who goes to wedding parties, secretly makes it better than it ever would have been without him, and then moves on without making a fuss about the good that he has done in that particular place? Who is this man? And if he can do that there, what might he do with your life or mine? What might he do with the life of the world? I hope you're wondering. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Just as Jesus was invited to the wedding in Cana, let's stand and proclaim our invitation uh, to him to build his kingdom here. Let's stand and sing together. Come set your rule and reign in 
whenever and wherever he builds his kingdom, it is one of unending quantity and unmatched quality. And the kingdom of the ages, which starts now, is one in which Jesus is the life of the party. As you go out from this place to live his way in the world, may the grace of the Lord Jesus and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you always. Amen.
Go in peace.